Thank you for that message, Ben. And I was blessed to have some wonderful, loving grandparents who were there for me and supported and encouraged me through school and in my ministry. And I know they prayed for me daily. And they were such an example to me and helped to shape who I am today. And I'm grateful that Abby has grandparents like that as well. And uh, it is a good day to remember and give thanks for those godly grandparents in our lives. And that kind of brings us to where we are in the book of James. This idea of passing down that faith, being that example, living out our faith before others, as many of our grandparents have done and many grandparents in this room do on a regular basis. And, and that's really the theme of James's letter. It's having a faith that works, a faith that is lived out, a faith that is demonstrated. And we've looked so far in James at his warning to us not to be double-minded, and unstable in all our ways. If we're going to pray to God, pray in faith, believing in who God is and what He does. He's warned us about deceiving ourselves by being hearers of the Word only and not doing what it says. In other words, it's not enough just to listen to or, or, or listen to, preached or to read the Bible. We then need to apply it. We need to let it make a difference in how we live our lives, do what the Bible tells us. God doesn't want to just inform our minds. He wants to transform our hearts. And James has challenged us to test our religion, to see if it's pure and faultless. And how do we do that? Well, we examine how we speak, how we act, how we serve other people. Our actions should reflect our faith. And in my last message two weeks ago, and I want to thank Jeff again for preaching for me last Sunday while I got to go with the youth on the mission trip to Gatlinburg. We had a great time and what a, what a powerful message you brought, Jeff, and, and just how it fits so well with where we are right here, that, that goal that we're pressing toward and, and running that race uh, to, to live out that faith. And so in my last message, we looked at a fruitless faith, a faith that, that doesn't do anything, a faith that doesn't make a difference in our lives, a faith that doesn't show itself in works or actions, a faith that's dead, a faith that's as useless as a screen door on a submarine. We looked at that last time. And James uses a literary technique in last week's or last time's passage and this passage to teach us this important truth. And it's, it's sort of like a courtroom scene. And James is debating with this opponent their different perspectives on faith and its relationship with works. So let's look at last time's passage just to refresh us and to lead us into today's passage. So look with me, if you will, at James chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14. <clears throat> what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good. Even demons believe that, and they shudder. So James has posed the question, can deedless faith save? And his conclusion is no. Faith without works is dead. Such faith is fruitless. You can't save. It's, it's little more than an intellectual consent to a list of beliefs. It's little more than an emotional response 
to an experience. Even demons believe things about God and shudder in His presence. But they're not saved. So James moves from making his case and engaging in sort of a a cross-examination of his opponent, and now he's going to clinch the case with two pieces of evidence, with two witnesses he's going to call to the stand. We'll call them Exhibit A and Exhibit B, or Witness A and Witness B. So let's go to the first piece of evidence, the first testimony that we have, and it comes from Abraham. It comes from Abraham. Look with me at verse 20. Senseless person. <laughs> I love that. Don't you have people in your life and you might want to say that too sometimes? Senseless person. Are you willing to learn? That's a great phrase too right there. Aren't you willing to learn? You know, so often when we are wrong, when we kind of we want to dig in our heels on something and we're confronted with the truth from God's Word, it's a good question for us. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works. And by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So in my last message, we talked about this this kind of tension that's in this passage and how on the surface it seems like that James is in contradiction with other writers of the Bible, particularly Paul, who is very clear that salvation is by faith alone through grace alone, right? That we are saved by God's grace through our faith. That was sort of the mantra of the Protestant Reformation, right? Faith alone, grace alone. So it seems on the surface like James is kind of contradicting this. I mean, look back at verse 14 that we've already read this morning. He says, What good is it if someone claims to have a faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? Well, Paul, he answers that in Romans 3.23, For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So on the surface, it seems like that they're kind of talking past each other here. And that seeming contradiction is only amplified by the fact that both Paul and James use Abraham to make their case. They both point to the same person from these different perspectives. So we've already read James' use of Abraham. Let's look at how Paul uses Abraham in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. So again, what do we do with this? Well, as I said last time, James and Paul are both right. They're both correct. They are not in disagreement about the doctrine of salvation, about the nature of faith. Rather, they're addressing two different problems in the churches that they're writing to. Paul is addressing people who believe that they basically have to become Jewish before they can become Christian. He's dealing with these people that are teaching that you've got to be circumcised, you've got to observe the Sabbath, you've got to keep the Passover, you've got to avoid the unclean, you can't eat bacon or sausage for breakfast. And if you want to be a Christian, these are the things you've got to do. And Paul is combating against that, and I'm thankful because I enjoyed my sausage and my, my bacon. 
But, that, that, so Paul's dealing with people that are putting their faith not in the work of Christ, but in their own works. Their faith is in their own religious rule-keeping. That's what Paul is fighting against. James, on the other hand, is combating people who claim to have a faith in Jesus, but it makes no difference in their lives. They live like the lost around them. They walk and talk like the rest of the world. There's no difference in their lives. And so James and Paul are talking about the same gospel. They're in agreement about how we are saved, but they're looking at it from two different vantage points. And so let's look at James's first witness here, his first exhibit, Abraham, to discover kind of two sides to the same salvation coin. And the first thing we see are two stages of righteousness. Two stages, two phases, two different aspects of righteousness. Now, righteousness is one of those religious words that we already have a hard time with because we don't really use it anywhere else. And, and so we don't really know what it means. And it's not helped by the fact that in the Bible it can even mean different things. So to read righteousness in the Bible, it's not always talking about the same thing. In fact, James and Paul talk about righteousness again in two different ways. So the first stage of righteousness is positional. Positional righteousness. That talks about our standing before God. How we stand before God in relationship with God. And this is the kind of righteousness that Paul is most concerned with. Again, because he's writing to these people who are Gentiles and they're being told that they've got to become Jewish to become Christian. They've got to observe all these Torah rules and regulations to be saved. So Paul is talking about how we stand before God. How we are justified by faith apart from the works of the Old Testament law. He says that we're not saved by anything we can do. And so we have nothing to boast about. Eternal life is given to us by God's grace alone. It is received by our faith alone. And that is how we stand before God, righteous as His sons and daughters. It's by His grace through our faith. This is positional righteousness, wherein God declares us righteous because of what Jesus did. You understand? Not because of anything we do. It's because of what Jesus did that we are put into a position of being deemed righteous by God. He declares us righteous. Jesus is the one who paid the price, though, for the sins that we have committed, right? Jesus is the one who was cursed so we could be blessed. Jesus is the one who was punished so we could be forgiven. Jesus is the one who died so that we could live. Or as Paul powerfully put it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who had no sin, Jesus was perfect, to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's our position. Positional righteousness is that when we put our faith and trust in what Jesus has done, we stand in Jesus, and therefore God sees us as righteous. James agrees with this completely. James agrees with everything I just said completely. He understands that salvation is by grace through faith. He would agree that nobody can stand righteous before God apart from the works of Jesus Christ. It can only be freely given to us by God through Him. Though we were sinners, Jesus died for us so that by His gift we can have eternal life. That's what Paul says. That's what James says. James is focused on a different kind of righteousness. He's focused on practical righteousness. 
That's not how we stand before God. That's how we walk before God. It's how we live before God. Once we are declared righteous, are we then acting like righteous people? Are we living out that righteousness? Remember, James is fighting a different battle than Paul. He's he's up against those who have basically reduced faith to just intellectual assent to to some, some statements, right? I believe this, I believe that, I believe this, I believe that. You know, I, and, and, and it's sort of the, the mentality that because I am a Baptist, because I am a Methodist, because I am a Catholic, because I walked an aisle, shook a preacher's hand, and got wet, I'm good to go, I'm saved. I'm going to ride into heaven on Mama and Daddy's coattail. My parents were Christian. They raised me Christian. I'm good to go. But these people have never put their faith and trust personally themselves in Jesus Christ. And they think that just because they believe things about Jesus... Just because their name is on the roll of a church, they're good. But if they've never truly trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, they're lost, and they're going to live like lost people. I'm not saying that they're you know, out there just sending up, you know, up and down, noon, noon to midnight, but they are lost. That's who James is dealing with. That's, that's who he's talking to. And sadly, there are a lot of self-professed Christians out there that don't have saving faith, and therefore they don't have any fruit. There is no evidence. It's like the old saying goes, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? There are people who say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, I believe in God. Oh, I have a Bible. Oh, I'm a member of such and such a church. But they've never really given their lives to Jesus Christ. So James is not arguing that true saving faith doesn't involve trusting in the atonement of Jesus Christ. He's simply stressing the fact that that kind of faith is going to be demonstrated and it's going to grow by what we do, by how we live out the righteousness of God. And again, Paul agrees with that, okay? So they're both in agreement with each other here. Paul often talks about things like how we are new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. He talks about how we take off the old self, the old nature. We put on the new self, the new nature that we put to death our old ways of living and and as baptism shows, we are raised to walk in newness of life. Paul talks about this as well. If you have positional righteousness, if you've been declared righteous by God because of Jesus Christ, because you put your faith in Him, then that should be made evident in practical righteousness in how you live your life. So they're talking about two different stages of righteousness. Secondly, they're talking about two opposing views of work. Two opposing views of work. Now, when we read the word works, deeds, actions here in the Greek, in the New Testament, in the Greek, it's the same word. Works, actions, deeds, it's all the same word. It's the word ergon. The same word we get the word ergonomics from, right? And ergonomics deals with work, how we work, how we accomplish something. Okay, so sometimes the Bible uses this word ergon in a positive way. Sometimes it uses it in a negative way. And again, for Paul and James, it both goes back to the problem that each are addressing. So Paul often uses ergon in a negative way because what Paul is fighting against is flesh-driven works in order to gain God's favor. Okay, Flesh-driven works to gain God's favor. That's the next slide. That's what Paul is fighting against. So when our works are done in our own wisdom when they're done in our own power, when they're done with selfish motives, they don't honor God, right? When, 
That's the kind of legalistic work of the law that Paul talks about in Galatians 3 and Romans 3 and 4 and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He's talking about this works of the law done in the flesh to try to earn God's grace and salvation. We can't do it. There's no amount of works you can do to make yourself right with God. There's no amount of works you can do to overcome your sins. You can't do it. Isaiah even talks about this. Isaiah 64, 6 through 7, he says, All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Compared to God's holiness and righteousness, any righteous act we try to do is like filthy rags in comparison. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. There's only one outcome for our works in the flesh. If we are trying on our own to work our way to heaven, there's only one outcome for that, and it's death. It's death. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What are wages? Wages are what you earn by your work, right? If we're relying on our works to get into heaven, we're going to be sorely disappointed. The wages that we earn by our works of the flesh is death, but the gift of God that we freely receive, it's not wages, it's nothing you earn, it's a gift. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul is warning us to be on guard against a legalism, this idea that my relationship with God is ultimately up to me and my ability to, to do enough right things to earn His favor. This is what paganism teaches. Right? Pagans believe that if you make enough offerings, if you make enough sacrifices, if you do enough rituals, you can appease the gods. That's not how the God of the Bible works. It's not how He works. Now, on the other hand, James is combating against the opposite of legalism. He's combating leniency. Okay, Paul's working against legalism. James is working against leniency. Many people today are guilty of this. They confuse grace with the idea of being, quote-unquote, welcoming and affirming or inclusive. You know, James was fighting a form of this heresy 2,000 years ago, and it's a heresy that basically says even to this day, 2,000 years later, that as long as what you believe is sincere, it doesn't really matter what you believe, just be sincere in your belief. And, and if you're sincere in your belief, it doesn't really matter how you live. You do you. You live out your truth. You be yourself. You live out your true identity. That is heresy. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what Jesus preached. That is not what neither Paul nor James are writing about. They're writing against this idea. But sadly, a lot of churches are there today. A lot of denominations are there today. They don't want to hold anybody accountable to a standard of behavior. Guess what God's Word gives us? A clear standard of behavior. So because James was combating this leniency, he used ergon in a positive way to emphasize spirit-driven fruit that glorifies God. So Paul's writing against flesh-driven works to try to earn God's favor. James is combating this idea of lenient faith by emphasizing spirit-driven fruit that glorifies God. So when James talks about works or deeds, he's not advocating that we in the flesh try to earn our way to God. No. Instead, God-glorifying obedience should come from our love for God 
and our faith in God. In other words, good works are the result of the fruit of our faith, not the cause of our faith. Let me say that again. Good works are the fruit of our faith. They're not the cause of our faith. And Paul talks about the same thing as well. So again, I'm trying to show you how Paul and James are really in agreement on all of this. Paul says in Romans 1.5, through Him, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about what? The obedience of the faith for the sake of His name among all the Gentiles. So here Paul is talking about the obedience of faith. Sounds a lot like works of the faith, doesn't it? A faith that works is a faith that obeys. In Galatians 5, 6, we looked at this last time. What matters is faith working. Faith working through love. Our faith must work. Later on in that same chapter, Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit. That if we are truly believers in Jesus Christ, then the character qualities of Christ should come through in our lives. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, how exactly does the fruit of the Spirit be, how is it produced in our lives? Both James and Paul would agree the same, by faith. It's by faith. So James uses the story of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac as an example of this fruitful, living, obedient faith. Okay? But in verse 23... James is quoting a much earlier story, all right? So the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac is in Genesis 22. But he quotes Genesis 15, 16 that says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So this is where Abraham actually entered into a covenant relationship with God. Genesis 15, 16 is where God enacts this covenant with Abraham. And Abraham becomes a follower of God, a believer in God, He believes in God's promise. He believes that through him and Sarah, even though she's barren, even though they're like a hundred years old, he believes what God is saying, that through them God will raise a mighty nation and bless all the families of the earth. Abraham believed in that promise about 30 years before Isaac would even be born. So he held on to that promise. He lived out that faith for 30 years before we saw the fruit of it. And because of that faith and trust in God, He was made right. He was positionally righteous before God. He was justified and made right before God. But in Genesis 22, 30 years, some odd years later, 30, 40 years later, God puts Abram's faith to the test. He puts it to the test. When He commanded Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac, the son of the promise, the son that God promised that through him He would raise a mighty nation, God said, now I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham was willing to do it, believing that God would not renege on His promise, that God would not go back on His Word, that God would not, you know, just just say, I'll pull out the rug from under your feet. That He would be true to what He said. And God commended Abraham for his faith. Now, God stopped His hand. God said, you've demonstrated and proven your trust in Me, your willingness to obey Me. So He didn't sacrifice His Son. But through that test, God confirmed Abraham's faith. James's point is that Abraham's faith grew in those 30 years between his saving faith by which he was 
positionally declared righteous for God and this practice of his faith, this demonstration of his right living for God. In other words, his faithfulness in Genesis 22 was the fruit of the faith that he placed in God back in Genesis 15. Genesis 22 was the practical living out of the faith that he placed in God all those decades before. That's how living, saving faith works. It creates good works in and through us, and in turn, those works then help us to grow and mature in our faith. It's a, it's a, it's a give-and-take cycle. Look back at verse 22. He says that Abraham's faith was made complete by his works. His works completed his faith. That word complete means mature. His faith grew up. His faith matured. And that's true for us. When we obey what God's Word says, when we live for Jesus, our faith matures. It grows. It gets stronger. It gets deeper. Consider your works today. Are they fueled by the flesh? Or are they driven by the Spirit? When you come to worship, do you do it out of a sense of duty? Do you do it to somehow get on God's good side so that He'll bless you? Or do you come out of love for God? Do you come out of gratitude for His grace in your life? Do you come to celebrate and worship Him and to grow in your love for Him and and to experience His presence? Why do you come to worship? Why do you serve? Why do you give tithes and offerings? Why do you read your Bible and pray? What is that motivation? Is it to attempt in a legalistic way to earn God's favor, to get on His good side? Or are they results of your faith? Are they an overflow of your relationship with God? Paul and James really do agree. They're each focusing on a different aspect of righteousness. They're each looking at works from a different perspective. And third, they're looking at two different stages of justification. Two different stages of justification. Now, this word justified is another religious word we don't use very much. But think about justified like this. It's just as if I'd never sinned. When you're justified before God, it's made just as if I'd never sinned. God forgives you and He forgets all your sin. And you're made righteous. You're declared righteous positionally in Christ before a holy God. So... The stage that James is, is, or the stage that, that Paul focuses on is the new birth being conceived by faith. That's Paul's focus. The new birth conceived by faith. So when James mentions Genesis 15:6, where God declared Abraham righteous because of his faith, that is what Paul focuses on in Romans 4. It's what Paul focuses on in the book of Galatians. When we come to faith in Jesus, when we confess and repent of our sins, we are justified in that moment before God. When you put your faith in Jesus, as these three uh, little girls and young women did, as, as they put their faith in Jesus, they are immediately, whenever that happened, vacation Bible school at home, whenever it was, in that moment they are made righteous before God. They are justified, forgiven of all the sins they've ever committed and ever will commit. They, their eternal trajectory is changed in that moment. And they are forever son, daughters of God, sons of God, going to live forever in heaven. You understand? That's the new birth. Born again, made new. That happens the minute you put your faith and trust in Jesus and nothing can change it. Nothing can take that away, that initial moment of salvation. That's Paul's focus. 
the new birth conceived by faith. James, however, is focused on a second stage of justification, a final justification that's going to happen someday. He's focused on the new birth being confirmed by our works. We confirm that new birth by our works. So James focuses, even though he mentions Genesis 15:6, he focuses on Genesis 22, on Abraham's faithful obedience and his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. In that moment, Abraham received the final justification of sorts. God reaffirmed his covenant promise with Abraham. And like Abraham, we are called to obediently trust and follow God's Word. And when Christ returns, we, before His judgment seat, will receive that final justification. The minute you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're saved from sin's penalty. You're forgiven. Your destiny is not hell. It is now heaven. But when Christ comes again, in that final justification, we're also saved from the very power and presence of sin. Sin will be no more. Temptation will be no more in that final justification. So James isn't saying that works are the basis of our salvation. He's saying they're the evidence of our salvation. They're the evidence of our faith. They confirm our new birth that we belong to Jesus. Our new birth in Christ is made apparent. When we, it's like standing in the waters of the baptistry. We're publicly demonstrating our faith in Jesus. We're to do that every day and how we talk, and how we live, and how we treat people, and our priorities, we demonstrate for other people that our faith is in Jesus Christ. And when we stand before His throne, we will then find ourselves among the sheep. Remember the parable of the sheep? And Jesus will look at us and say, You fed the hungry. You clothed the naked. You visited the sick and in prison. Come now and enjoy your Master's happiness. It's because we love and follow Jesus, the one who came for the last and the least. So that's Exhibit A. That's Abraham. Through Abraham, James, and Paul both help us understand that initial moment of salvation, how we're made righteous in God's presence, but then how we live that faith out every day. We demonstrate that righteousness every day. Every day in how we live our lives, we are to be confirming that new birth that we've already experienced in Christ. We're not saved by faith plus works. We're saved by faith that then does work, that makes a difference in our lives. Now we come to Exhibit B, uh, and James calls a second witness to the stand. And this one is Rahab. He calls Rahab to the stand. Look with me at verse 25. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? You may remember the story of Abraham, uh, sorry, of Rahab, that Rahab was a prostitute living. She was a Canaanite. She was a pagan. She lived in the city of Jericho. It was a wicked city. And uh, the spies from Israel, they're about to conquer the promised land. And Joshua sends some spies. And two of these spies end up in Rahab's house, right? She's a prostitute, which in that day meant that she probably also ran, you know, like a, think of like the saloons out west with, you know, the upstairs rooms, you know, and they sort of had these women there that, that you know, but there, there were rooms you could stay in, right? So these spies go there to her house and they hide her, or I'm sorry, she hides them up on the roof when the king's men come looking for these supposed spies. And she saves their life. And when she does that, she says to them, I've heard about this God of yours and I no longer want to, live here with these people and do this, I want to come with you. I want to follow and serve this God of yours. And so she tells them where to go hide. She lets them out the window and they say, when we come to take the city, 
we're going to spare you and your family and everybody in this house. And that's exactly what happened, right? So, two things about Rahab that make her the perfect example of this balance between saving grace and a faith that works. And the first is this. She received salvation through radical grace. You can't find two more different people than Abraham and Rahab, right? I mean, here you've got Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish people. She's a pagan Canaanite prostitute. (laughs) Very different. Abraham was called the friend of God. Rahab lives among the enemies of God. Abraham was the wealthy man and the leader of a nation. Rahab was poor and at the bottom of the social ladder. The fact that Rahab would come to be among the family of Abraham and become an ancestor of Jesus Christ the Messiah is an act of pure, radical, scandalous grace. She did nothing to deserve this. There was nothing in her life that could possibly make her righteous before God. But she became a member of God's family. She was the recipient of radical grace. But secondly, she risked her life through radical action. She received radical grace, but she acted in radical faith and obedience, right? She turned her back on her people. She gave up her way of life. She renounced her sins. She embraced the God of Israel, whom she didn't know a whole lot about. I mean, she's a perfect example of what Jesus said. You just have to have the faith, enough faith the size of a mustard seed. You just have to have the faith of a child. That's all she had. But it was enough. And God saved her. And God included her among His people. And she demonstrated that faith through radical action to put her life at risk. She gained a new family, a new way of life, and a new relationship with her Creator. It's a beautiful picture of this. We are saved by God's grace, but we are saved to act, to work, to live out that faith. And so James brings his closing argument in verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. He takes us all the way back to his main argument. Faith without deeds is dead, just as the body is dead without the spirit. It's as useless as warm wishes on a cold night. A deedless faith is no good. It can't save. But a working faith is a living faith. A working, fruitful faith has the power to save and transform our lives. Let's go back to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2. Paul said, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not by works. So no one can boast. Again, you cannot do enough good works to earn forgiveness. You can't do enough to be made righteous in God's eyes. It's a gift you receive by faith. Are we clear on that? But Paul goes on in Ephesians 2.10 to say, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And both Abraham and Rahab are examples of this. Abraham was an elderly, wealthy pagan who worshipped multiple gods in, in Mesopotamia. 
But God in His grace chose Abraham. He was elderly. His wife was elderly. They were barren. They couldn't have children. Yet in His grace, God chose Abraham and said, No, through you. I'm going to do something through you you can't do yourselves. I'm going to do something amazing in your life. I'm going to make you mine and make you the father and mother of my nation, of my people. And someday through you, the Messiah will come to bless all families on earth. That was an act of radical grace from God. But Abraham acted in his faith. He went where God led him. He believed God would give him this son. He was willing to sacrifice his son to God. Time and again, Abraham lived out that faith through his works and his actions. Same thing for Rahab. She did not deserve, could do nothing to earn God choosing her to be among His people and again an ancestor of Jesus. But in His grace He chose her and in her faith she acted. She did something about it. We are called the same way. God comes to you in His grace and invites you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. He promises you something that He will forgive your sins and give you a home in heaven. And all you have to do is receive it. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins as the perfect Son of God, that God raised Him from the dead, and that if you trust in Jesus, He'll forgive you and give you eternal life. If you believe that in your heart, you confess that with your mouth, God's Word says you're saved. But that kind of faith is a faith that will be lived out every day. You will grow closer to Him. You'll have a hunger and thirst for Him. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. But it means that when you do sin, your heart is grieved over it and you confess that sin and you pray and work for God to help you to live better tomorrow than you did today. And it's a desire to share your faith. It's a desire to serve the Lord. It's a desire to live for something other than yourself. That is a faith that works, a fruitful faith. Is that the kind of faith you have? Maybe you're here today and you're hearing this message and the Spirit of God is convicting you that you need to stop trying to earn God's favor and just rest in His grace. And I invite you to come today and do that. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as these three have done for your, for, for your eternal salvation. But if you are a Christian today, I want you to ask yourself, are you living out of faith that's fruitful? Are you living out of faith that works? Are you allowing your faith in Jesus Christ to make a difference in how you live? Or are you undistinguishable from the world? Yeah, you may come to church on a Sunday morning, but how are you living on Saturday, on Friday night? What do you like at work? What do you like at school around your friends? I pray that you would examine your walk with God today. This altar is open for you to respond as the Spirit of God leads. I'll be down front to pray with you, to counsel you, to help you be obedient to what the Spirit is saying to you today. Would you please stand and pray with me, Father? We rejoice and thank You for Your grace that apart from anything we can do has the power to save us. That Jesus Christ, by His death and resurrection, can wash away our sins and make us new. That You declare us righteous. You justify us simply when we receive by faith Your gift of grace. And if there's anyone here today that needs to do that, I pray they would do it today and not delay one moment. Father, for those of us that have received that grace, those of us who are among the people of God, Lord, we're still on that spiritual journey. As as Brother Jeff preached last week, we're still in that race, pressing towards that goal. And some of us are at different places in that race. And some of us are maybe tired and thirsty and exhausted. Some of us maybe have have injured ourselves and 
We're all at different places, Lord. So I pray that wherever we are as Your children, that we would rest in You and trust in You and we would take the next right step of faith and obedience to Your Word. God, draw us closer to You. And I pray, God, we would respond in this moment in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray.